0: Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for, well, everything. Think of King David praying before the assembly of all the Israelites and his prayer to you, which was, who are we? to offer willingly when all that we have is from you. So even our ability to praise you is a gift you've given us. Our willingness to praise you is a gift you've given us. Your word is a gift. Your son is our gift. Eternal life is a gift. Our Ability to listen this morning is a gift. My ability to speak this morning is a gift. Our time together is a gift. This building is a gift. Our relationships with each other are gifts. Our relationship with you is a gift. Everything we have is from you and for you and to you and by you for your glory and to satisfy us in Christ. So we want to be satisfied in Christ. But to be satisfied in him, we need more of him. So give us more Jesus this morning. And what I mean by that is increase our affections, strengthen our desire. Pull our attention into Jesus. And not just for today, but for every day. And creating in us new habits of Christ-likeness. Not just for our good, and not just for the good of everyone around us, but for your glory, God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Last week we learned how to deal with an elder who persists in sin and how to deal with someone in the congregation making an accusation of sin against an elder. And then Paul establishes rules. He did that in verses uh, 19 and 20. Today we're in verse 21. In the last two verses, he establishes these rules for such situations for us to follow. And in today's text, he addresses the reason for those rules. So this is really important because the Bible doesn't just tell us what to do. The Bible tells us what to do and why we're doing it. And that is very important. And I've said this many times. I think that there are different types of people. I know there are different types of people. And we all think differently and have different perspectives. And we all desire to know different types of information. Some of us are why people. Some of us are how people if you're given a command some of you will go well why am i doing that and others won't aren't even concerned with the why they'll just go all right well how do i do it and neither's wrong but a healthy blend of both i want to understand why i'm doing this and i want to understand how to do it and the bible tells us these things mm-hmm. so there's a there's importance to the why so the reasons matter and the reason the reasons matter is because with the reasons, we've got a foundation. And if we can establish the foundation of the reasons why we should do certain things, we will understand the more important reality that underlies all of this. And so we look at this situation. this very practical, surface situation. You've got an elder that is maybe in sin. And you've got people that recognize the sin in the elder. And they have to bring two or three witnesses along That's what Paul said in verse 19. uh, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if you're going to charge church leadership, you better have some support for your accusation. And so that's all very surfacey. That's, you know, a horizontal thing. I, I say horizontal because it's us relating to each other. Horizontal meaning the relationship between the church with the church, the people with the people versus vertical where we're relating upward toward God. I think about these horizontal and vertical aspects in our worship service on Sunday mornings. I try to We try to organize worship on Sunday morning and in, in, in flow in such a way where we are horizontal and then vertical versus horizontal, vertical, horizontal, vertical, horizontal, vertical, and we're going, God, people, God, people, like that. Instead, I like us to interact with each other and then together whew, we focus on Christ. And so a lot of these horizontal Issues in the church or realities in Scripture, and one of them being sin and how we deal with sin with each other. Two or three witnesses bringing accusation against an elder—all that is just the practical stuff. It's the logistics. It's the specifics. But underneath that is this really important reason why, and that reason why is so vital to who we are and what the gospel is. And what we'll see is that reason why is a reason for many other practical realities that were, that we're commanded to do in Scripture. And so underneath this very practical, logistical, specific practice of how to deal with sin in church leadership or accusations of sin against church leadership is one person. Underneath all of this is one person. At the foundation of all of this is one person. The reason for all of this is one person. And that person is, Is Jesus. Now I know that seems overly simplified, almost Sunday school like. You know, Jesus is the answer. But if we think that Jesus being the foundation of anything and everything and all the things that we do think and say, if we think that that is too simple, then we don't know him well enough. Then we don't understand the reality of Scripture. We don't understand the reality of God. Jesus should be the reason you do everything and anything at all times, every second of your entire life. Every thought. Second Corinthians ten five. Take every thought captive. Why? Jesus. That's why. There's a command. Take every thought captive. Why? What's the reason? What's the foundation? To obey Christ. Jesus is the reason. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Jesus is the reason for the command. Jesus is the reason for how we deal with sin in the church. What I want to do for you today is I want to walk through this text and, and help you understand what Paul's thinking. And I think what Paul is thinking, I know what Paul is thinking is Timothy, Timothy. I just gave you directions for how to deal with an accusation of sin against an elder in the church. So you've got these very practical realities. People with their problems. We know what people are like. We know how people can be. They can be great. They can be terrible. They can be wonderful, patient, kind, gracious, loving, gentle, understanding. They can be vicious, toxic, manipulative, narcissistic, evil. Okay. And anything in between. So... Managing these people is a big deal. And if you try to manage these people without Christ or without the gospel as your motivator or without Jesus being the reason, you will not mitigate the evil of humanity. You cannot temper the sinful nature of man with morality. You can't just be a good person. It doesn't work because you're not a good person you are conceived into absolute and total wickedness and the only reason you're not that today is because of the redemption of Jesus Christ in you and he has made you something new that's the only reason you're not that pure wickedness anymore so now we've been freed from sin We are alive in Christ, and capable, and able, and willing now, willing to obey, to be righteous, to be holy, to be good, and to practice good morals. But morality itself will never produce righteousness. Your good works, the good things you do, and obeying Scripture, and in this case, obeying this command for how we deal with sin in the church— requires that christ is the motivation and that christ is the reason and the purpose and that christ is the goal and the aim and the 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 objective we are trying to achieve magnifying jesus exalting his gospel being satisfied with christ glorifying his name and obeying him and following his words and his commands that's our desire The number of times in ministry that I've talked to people and said, why do you do this ministry for the church? And they say things like, I don't know, I'm just good at it. And I'm like, that's not a good reason. I'm good at basketball. I could have been in the NBA. (laughs) What what is this? How you guys had my back? You know, if I hadn't blown up my knee. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I could not have been in the NBA. But I'm, I'm good at basketball. Why don't I just give up what I'm doing and just go do basketball? What, what, what's the difference? Well, I'm good at it. I'm good at a lot. Of, you're good at things. You're good at things you're not doing. Just do them. Do you realize how much more meaning, meaningful it is? When you do an act of service or a ministry for the church and that thing is something you're not good at or it's something you don't like to do, do you realize how impactful that is and how meaningful that is and what's really going on? Like, I've said this before about myself. Service is not my spiritual gift. And if you see me serving, that's not me. That's Christ in me, right? And some of you are the opposite. You're the kind of person who wants to put the chairs away, wants to vacuum, wants to help, wants to clean up. You don't want to interact with people. You're an introvert. You're like, I'll just go clean, take out the garbage. And when it's interaction time, I'll just be busy so I don't have to talk to people. You know, it'd be amazing if you stopped all that and you're like, I am going To interact with people. I'm going to build relationships. That's not who I am. That's not my gift. I'm not an encourager. I'm not a communicator. But I'm going to extend myself outside of my comfort zone. I'm going to do the things that aren't natural for me. And let Christ take over. It is not my natural inclination to take out the garbages. To vacuum the floors. To change the light bulbs. To put the chairs away. It's not my natural inclination. So when I get a chance to do it, or I have to do it, I get an opportunity to be reminded of, this isn't me. I'm not doing this. I'm not the motivation. Doing this isn't the 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 motivation my motivation isn't just to accomplish this task and my motivation isn't oh to make these this group of people happy by doing this thing so that they can do their ministry that's my motivation that can't be my motivation my motivation has to be i am serving my lord my savior my master jesus christ i'm doing this for him I'm doing this through him, I'm doing this to him, I'm doing this because of him, and I'm doing this in him. There's no, other, there's no other way to think. And anything short of that is sin. Or it is at least some degree of lacking holiness. The problem, which we'll see as we get to the text... In our hearts and our minds, the problem for us is that we have not made a practice or a habit of thinking about Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that's true of everybody, because you could be going, I do all the time. I I make a a concerted effort every day to think about Christ all the time. And And if you are, that's awesome. If that's you, that's awesome. That should be... All of us, and it 's hard to do I know i 'm not condemning you for this i 'm encouraging you toward it that 's what I want to encourage you toward christ and and the reason is because Paul makes his reason christ so at the end of this, I hope what we see is is that the At the end of the day, whatever we're doing, whatever we say, whatever we think, whatever actions we perform, whatever command we obey, regardless of what the command is in Scripture, all the commands, whatever activities we do, whatever spiritual disciplines we practice, whatever ministries we serve to serve the church with or serve the community with or or however we give or any anything we do or think or say, all of our being should be focused on, centered on, geared towards, purposed at Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to see by the end of this. So in verse 21, Paul writes, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So Paul begins with this daunting statement about the presence of God and Christ and the angels. It's kind of intimidating, right? Like, remember, everything's done in the presence of God and Christ and the angels. It's like, oh, that's kind of terrifying. This is Paul's reminder to Timothy that all of this ministry to the church is done in the presence of God. It is rather easy for us to forget that all of, that all the serving we're doing is for him, that our ministry and our efforts and our actions and all are all intended to please God and not intended to please man. So we have this, I think, maybe a confusing reality in Scripture, which is this concept that we are commanded not to please man, but we are also commanded to serve man. Right? We're commanded to serve one another, to love one another, to sacrifice for each other. That's very man-oriented. But then we're not, we're commanded not to try to please man while we serve man, which does please man. So how do we manage that? Well, the solution is rather simple. Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men because when you serve, verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. So when you serve other people, when you do things for others which we're commanded to do, love one another, serve one another, sacrifice for one another, we're, we're, we're told to go as far as to bless those who persecute us and pray for our enemies. How much more then should we be serving sacrificially those who we call brother and sister in Christ? those who we say we love and who love us. And what Colossians 3:23 and 24 tells us is when you're serving men. Okay? The command is again, it's the same principle. There's a command, serve serve. Okay? Why? Because you're serving Christ. That's the reason. Christ is the reason. Again, You've got a command, it's practical, it's logistical, it's applicable to your life, you can do it in real life, but you could do it without even thinking about Jesus, and Paul's like, but don't do it without thinking about Jesus, because when you serve, you are, Colossians 3, 23 and 24, serving Christ. Christ is your motivation, again. So this truth is intended to keep our focus on our primary purpose of glorifying God. So with all the rules and details and logistics of the pragmatic nature of pastoral ministry, because... Timothy's Paul's teaching Timothy how to be a pastor in this book. It's easy for sinful man to fall, for sinful man who's a pastor specifically or or an elder or church leader. It's very easy for the sinfulness of man in those positions of leadership to fall into like a corporate mentality with the church. And to fall into serving the logistics and serving the rules and doing things up, a certain way that, that produces certain result and the reason that churches and, and pastors get to that point where their, their intention is to serve this particular result is because they haven't made Christ their motivation. They've made church attendance their motivation or a, a financial number their motivation or number of souls saved their motivation or number of baptisms their motivation or number of followers on their church Instagram page their motivation. Whatever it is Christ is not the motivation. And if he's not, that's a problem for any church and any Christian and any believer, any organization. It's very easy for us to fall into that. It's very easy for church leaders to fall into that corporate mentality, serving the logistics, serving the rules, rather than the creator of those rules and forgetting that those rules are meant to draw us to Christ who satisfies our souls all that we do, whether we are a believer or an unbeliever, so everybody, everyone in this room, everyone in the world outside of this room, is done in the eyes of the Lord. He sees all, he knows all, and he determines all, and so nothing is done outside of his involvement. Now, that's something you learn when you're like three, right? Right? God is watching you. And that's what we're told when we're kids. God is watching you. God is watching you. I don't know about you, but I was like, he is. Ooh, that's not good. Like, rarely were we ever, at least in my experience, maybe yours is different. Rarely was, was, was I ever given this presentation of God watching me in an encouraging and comforting manner. It was always like, God's watching you. And I was like, uh, I'm in trouble. If God is watching me. So it's kind of a scary reality. But that is not specifically Paul's point here. He's specifically encouraging and commanding Timothy to consider. He's commanding Timothy to consider. And really what Paul's ultimate saying is. Paul or Timothy. As I tell you these things. I'm telling you these things. In the presence of. God. Christ. And the elect angels. And. Keep that in mind, Timothy, because when you enforce these rules, you'll be doing it in the presence of God, Christ, and the elect angels. Meaning, Timothy, God is watching. You better do these things right. Now, that sounds kind of, you know, demanding and, and kind of rule-oriented. That doesn't feel like the right kind of motivation. Like, oh, I better watch out, Timothy. You better do it right. God is watching you. But there's a reason Paul does this. And we'll get to that. But he says here in verse 21 about the presence of God and Christ being like angels that, that Timothy has to be aware of as he enforces these rules. In verse 21, he says, These rules... What are these rules that Paul's referring to? These rules are specifically the command for how to deal with elders who are in persistent sin or the accusation against an elder in verses 19 through 20. So there's a big picture that Paul's painting for Timothy regarding how he deals with sinful elders and how he deals with an accusation against an elder. In our sinful nature, we are prejudiced. We are prejudiced. It is our automatic. It is natural. It's part of our sin nature. It's also wise in some ways. Our prejudice can be rational. If you're a woman and you're walking down a dark alley in the middle of the night, which I don't recommend, but let's say you're doing that, and you see a group of five men in dark hoodies at the end of the alleyway, your prejudice might lead you or cause you to turn around and go the other way. That would be a rational use of prejudice. Prejudice meaning prejudging, making a determination without all the facts. And for her safety, she will go the other way. That's rational prejudice. But in the context of the pastor or the church leader or the elders dealing with an accusation of sin against an elder, Paul demands no prejudice, no judging without the facts, no judging without the knowledge, no prejudice, no prejudging, no partiality toward either of the parties. And by reminding Timothy that Paul's commands are being presented to him in the presence of God, Christ, and the elect angels, keeps Timothy's perspective biblical. It ensures that Timothy does not favor the one who makes the accusation against an elder and ensures that Timothy does not favor the elder against the accuser. That's Paul's point. Don't favor the elder and don't favor the accuser. Favor neither. It reminds me of Solomon when... The two women came to Solomon with a baby. You guys know the story? And they're like, the one lady's like, this is my baby. She's like, no, that's my baby. No, this is my baby. You stole my baby. So they're like trying to figure out whose baby it is. And Solomon goes, it's easy. Cut the baby in half. You can share him, you know? And <laughs> Solomon doesn't mean it. He's being wise. It's an example in scripture of the wisdom of Solomon. And the one lady says, fine. And the other lady says, no, no, don't cut the baby in half. And Solomon's like, that's the mother. So, like, there's this uh, wisdom that you see Solomon imposing here. He's not favoring either of these people. What is he doing? He's getting to the facts. He's getting the information. He wants the truth to be revealed. So he uses wisdom to to pull the truth out of that situation. And then with the truth, he decides who's right and who's wrong. So there's no prejudging. There's... Assessment, there's wisdom imposed that brings out the truth. Now that he has the truth, he can take that truth and go, Now there's no prejudging. I have the truth. Pre is over. Now we're in the situation. I have the truth in my hand. Now I straight up just judge. And I judge or determine that this is the mother and that is not. So it's the same principle here. Don't prejudge, get the facts, Timothy. Get the information, get everything you need, get the truth out. And once you have the truth, then you determine who's right and who's wrong. And what it ensures is that the truth is revealed. It ensures that sin is dealt with and it ensures holiness is produced, which won't happen if someone is getting preferential treatment in these situations. Meaning this is, this is about truth and honesty and holiness Not about appeasing the people or the leadership. We appease God and then let him work as he wills. We appease God by obeying his commands, not being prejudiced, getting the truth out in in, a situation, and then with wisdom, applying that truth with judgment. Sound discernment and sound judgment. Jesus tells us to judge with right judgment. Well, prejudice is prejudging. That's not right judgment. That's wrong judgment. That's condemning because it lacks truth. And it lacks facts. Judging with right judgment, which we're commanded to do, requires getting the facts, getting the truth out, taking that truth, and then judging with the truth. So, that's the practicality. And then underneath that is the reason, which is Jesus. And we'll get into Jesus in a second. But I do want to ask this question. Why does Paul mention the elect angels? I mean, it makes sense. They'd be like, you're doing all this in the presence of God and of Christ. Well, God and Jesus are sovereign. God, they are creator, Lord, master. Of course, all that we do is done in their presence. We know that. Psalm thirty-three, thirteen through 14. I don't have this on PowerPoint. But it says, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the Earth. That's believers and unbelievers. It's everybody. God sees all, knows all, looks at all. It doesn't say this in this text, but I would other texts do say this. He not only sees all, knows all, but determines all, is involved in all, organizes orders, structures and controls all, ordains all. So to not see everything that you're in control of is an impossibility. uh, 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. So what's the point of of this? We know that's true about God. So we look at God and go, that makes sense. That we're doing everything in the presence of God. But angels aren't omnipresent. right? Omnipresent meaning, omni means All. Present, God is all present. Present everywhere at all times, once, because he's outside of time and he's outside of physical realm. So he is ever present, ever, ever. I'm not gonna go down that road. That's just really, <laughs> I, know, I know what happens to me when I go down that road. So why then does, if that's true about God, it makes sense why we could say everything we're doing is in the presence of God. So then why does Paul mention the elect angels? Well, angels are involved in the church. According to First Corinthians 4 9, angels are spectators of the church. According to Ephesians 1:21 and Colossians 2:10, angels are ruled under Christ and one day will be ruled under the church. And according to First Corinthians eleven ten, angels are present in the services of the church. The angels are involved in the church. They are committed to the church, to serve the church, to minister to the church to encourage the church, to observe the church, and to worship with the church according to how God directs them. Our service to Christ pleases the service of the angels. We're not not aiming to, to, to please the angels, but it does please them. And these angels, like us, are elect. Those who are not elect were dismissed from God's presence and sent to dwell on earth with Satan, a third of them to be exact. And those who are elect... Remained by God's sovereign will and his eternal presence and serve him today. And these angels have much greater awareness of the supreme. Before I get into this, let me just say, I think this is the reason Paul mentions the angels. The angels have a much greater awareness of the supreme and unimaginable reality of who God is. They know the presence of the Lord as non-divine creatures. They're in his presence. They know what he's like in ways that we don't. But their perspective is not clouded by sin like ours is. So they're like us, but, but our perspective of God is clouded by sin. And clouded by this, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, this like dim mirror. Like this dimness that we have between us And the presence of Christ. We don't see him face to face. And Paul says one day we will see him face to face. And what was dim will become clear. Well that clarity the angels have. They're in the presence of Christ. They're in the presence of God. They know him. I guess we could say in a physical way. Even though it's a spiritual realm. Where it's clouded for us in the moment. But we have something the angels don't have. We have God in us. Every time I say that, I've said it 10,000 times for the last 20 years. God is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. God puts his spirit of Christ in you. That still blows my mind 10,000 times later. Still, he's in us. That should immediately convict you of sin. Instantly, you should be like, does that mean he sees when I sin? Oh, yeah, <laughs> he's there. You know who else sees it? And I'm not trying to condemn you. So, but it is a little, it's a reality and it's a little terrifying. You all know sees you, God, Christ, and the elect angels who are all serving you and encouraging you away from that sin. Kind of a terrifying reality, a little scary. But the angels know and see God in ways that we one day will. Though, so, so there are similarities between us and the angels that we are both elect by God to his eternal presence and joy forever. They see things right now that we don't. One day we will see what they see and one day we will be higher than the angels. That's according to Hebrews because... We receive something the angels will never receive, grace, because we need it, because we're sinners. And because we receive grace, what do we become that the angels will never become? Sons and daughters of God, children of God, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, Romans eight seventeen. So the angels are righteously, and I say righteously, jealous. That's a righteous jealousy. Jealous of us because we received grace from God in Christ and therefore children of God. But at the moment, these angels angels have a much healthier view of God and of man and their observance of the church and involvement in the church is to help serve our perspective on who God is and what he is like and how he acts. It is as if the angels are following us around, Saying to us, if you only knew God the way I know God, if you only understood what I understood, then you wouldn't do this or that, or you would do this or that, or you wouldn't not do this or that. You would do this. You would do what I'm doing if you knew what I knew. If you saw his glory the way I see his glory, you wouldn't be doing these things. If you saw the magnificent beauty of Jesus Christ in his resurrected glory, you would not be doing this good act of service without him being your motivation. Like angels, why are they, why are they ministering to us? Why are they serving us? Why are they, what are they doing for us? Whatever it is, you think they're doing it because they're like showing off to their angel buddies? Like, hey, dude, you see what I did to that guy yesterday? I totally encouraged him. God sent me to encourage him. I did. I'm such a good angel. You know what that leads to? You becoming Satan, not you, the angel. That's what Satan did. It was like, look how great I am. And God was like, you're out. Angels don't think that way. Why? Because they're perfect. I mean, they have no sin. They're in the presence of God and his holiness. There can be no sin there. These angels are, uh, there is in Job, one of Job's friends, I don't, I think it's, I forget which guy it was, um, says to Job that God charges angels with wrongdoing. And I remember reading that being like, what? Angels get charged with wrongdoing? And then later in Job, God tells Job, your friends don't know anything and they're wrong. And I was like, oh, so careful when you read Bible verses, don't just take a thing, pull it out of its context and just apply it because, What God is saying is your friends are wrong. Meaning angels don't get charged with wrongdoing. They can't. They're in the presence of God's perfect holiness. So what are angels doing? They're doing God's will. And who are they doing it for? They're doing it for the glory of Christ. An angel's angel's primary goal is the same primary goal you have. Which is to glorify God. And what glorifies God the most? Jesus. Jesus. And what did Jesus do that most glorifies God? Sacrifices life. To save you. So what what did Jesus do that glorifies God the most as the most glorifying person to God? The gospel. He did the gospel. So where are we going to find our greatest satisfaction and God's greatest glory? In Christ. In the gospel. In who Jesus is. And that's how the angels function. They do everything to magnify Christ. Because the angels know. If I exalt the gospel. If I make Jesus look glorious. In the church. If, I, if I'm called as an angel. Called by God. Sent to the church. A messenger of God's to do something in the church. Or encourage the church. Or serve God in some way, shape, or form. We're not going to get into the functions of angels. But, um. If that's their intention, that's what they do. It's motivated by this purpose to make Christ look gloriously beautiful and magnify his gospel. Because they know if that happens, God is most glorified. Because God is most glorified in Christ. And so the angels know that. They see that. And that's why Paul mentions him here. He's saying, hey, dude, Timothy, when you serve the church, when you do these things, when you got to deal with sin in the church, you got to keep something in mind here, dude. It's very easy to get wrapped up in the politics of church. Oh, we got to get the budget ready. Oh, we got to deal with these people. Oh, we got to deal with the sin. We got to get this ministry going. We got to have someone for children's church. Got to have someone for this ministry. What are we going to do about the the bus? What are we going to do about the van? Do we have enough gas? in it? Do we have all these? like All those things matter. They're important. Of course we need to do them. It's not bad to focus on those things or deal with them or have ministry set up and to take care of logistics and the practicalities of doing ministry. All that stuff matters. But it is literally garbage and worthless and a waste of your time if Christ is not the motivation. If Jesus is not at the center of it, if he's not the reason, then it's worthless. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy. Dude, you could, you know, have this little court case where there's an accuser and then there's an elder and these people are accusing the elder. And You could do all the things right and do it without Christ and it will be sin and it will produce nothing holy in your church. It'll look like you did it right. At least you followed the rules, but it's worthless because Christ was not the purpose. The reason partiality, which Timothy's not supposed to do, the reason partiality hurts the church, the reason prejudice hurts the church is because it's absent of Christ, because it lacks the wisdom to discover the truth, and only in Christ do we find wisdom. So to be prejudiced is to be absent of Christ, to not be acting in the nature and character of Jesus. And when we're partial, if a church leader is partial, they're leaning toward one party. And if you're leaning toward one party, what does that mean? You're leaning away from the other party. Meaning partiality is not leaning toward the truth, which needs to be discovered first. So partiality favors someone with prejudice, without facts, without the truth being known. And so Timothy's to discover the truth first and then therefore act like Christ in wisdom. And what Paul is telling Timothy is, don't forget you're doing this in the presence of God and of Christ and the elect angels. You're doing it in the presence of people, uh, not people. You're doing it in the presence of beings who know the supreme, grand sovereign, glorious, and magnificent beauty of God and Christ. You're doing this in the presence of God himself who knows himself perfectly. And because God knows himself perfectly, he demands to be worshipped because he knows, hey, I care about you so much, I want what's best for you. You know what's best for you? Me! That's God's perspective. I'm the best thing for you. God's not a megalomaniac. He's not selfish. He rightly demands his glory. Because he's the only being who's worthy of it. And he knows it. So he demands it. And Christ knows it too. And the angels know it too. And we're told don't forget the presence of God and Christ and the angels because of what they know. Meaning don't forget that this is about the glory of God in Christ. I have some practical things that I'm going to skip on dealing with sin in the church, and I'm going to get to something else. I was saying earlier that it's kind of a scary thing when you're told God is watching you. You guys remember that song? I remember hearing this on the radio as a kid. Remember that song? God is watching us. You guys remember that? No? You said no. <laughs> I think that might make me a little old. Um, it's an older song. And I remember this, and it was like, God is watching us. And then it says, from a distance. And I was like, this person is terrible. I, was, I remember being a kid and thinking, this person has terrible theology. Like, God is ever-present. <laughs> he is from a distance. Who is this? Who wrote this song? I don't even know. But I remember listening to that song and thinking, what a bad perspective on God. Because even as a child, I knew, though I was told God is watching you, I knew that God was present because as much as I was told, God's watching you, God's watching you, God sees everything, and that's a terrifying reality, it was also this encouraging and uplifting reality that I was also told that God is ever-present, that he loves you, that he'll never leave you or forsake you, that he encouraging, you know, all these things. And so, this idea that God is just watching from a distance conveys this concept that is a faulty concept about who God is in our world. Unbelievers think this way, or tend to think this way, you know, um... And some believers, I think, still probably think this way, that God is like this, like, spiritual law enforcer, that he's like this police officer. If you do anything wrong or anything bad, you're going to go to eternal jail. He's just this, you get this fearful feeling of the supreme police officer who's going to take you to eternal jail the next time you do something wrong. That's kind of the, it's a terrifying truth to think about, and it's scary, and it makes God feel like something he really isn't. And at the same time, what that mentality does is it's short of both sides. It's short of God's present grace and mercy, and it's also short of the severity of God's judgment and wrath. And it puts God in between both of those and makes him just kind of like ambiguous. Just kind of there. He's not mean. He doesn't destroy. He's just eh, there watching. He's not present and patient and with you and caring. He's just "Eh, there. It's like a lukewarm God. It's a comfortable God. He's watching. He's there. He could could change things if he wanted. That makes me feel good. But he won't kill me because I'm a good person. And I hear he's loving. So he probably loves me. You know, it's like how convenient that this lukewarm God just fits right in the middle of your sinful inclination to think that you're a good person. When the reality is God is either judge, who brings wrath and vengeance on sinners, or he is judge who declares you righteous in Christ. And so we need to adjust, I think, always adjusting, always growing, always learning our perspective on who God is. And the reason this concept of God is watching us is a terrifying and not comforting thought is because we tend to base our relationship with Jesus on behavior. We tend to base our relationship with Jesus on behavior, on Jesus's behavior. And our behavior. Now, our relationship with Jesus is based on his behavior. And I mean, absolutely, the gospel is predicated on the perfection of Jesus Christ, right? And the gospel is also predicated on the imperfection, absolute and total imperfection of us, his called and chosen people. And so his perfection gets applied to us through the gospel, by grace, through, or by faith and through grace. And so... um. we think about Jesus did good and then the Bible's full of commands and I have to do good. Now that's true. Jesus did do good and you do have to do good. That's true. But if that's the extent of our theology and our understanding of our relationship with God, then that becomes not true. Because our relationship with God in Christ isn't based on behavior Our faith in Christ is based on desire. He's changed your will. He's changed your will. Why do you obey him? Because you want to. And when you don't want to, guess what you do? You disobey him. Even as a believer. Why do you obey him? Because you want to. It's desire that drives us. Behavior is driven by desire, and if desire is not there, we're still commanded to obey. You don't get to not obey just because the desire is not there. The number of conversations I've had with people where they're like, well, I just don't desire to be in the word, and I'm just hoping that God will give me the desire. And I'm like, well, you know what? Just do it anyways. Just read your Bible. If you want desire to grow, it's going to come from the act of obedience. So just do it. So there is a relationship that kind of goes back and forth with how obedience and desire work. And I don't want to get into that. But I do want to say that we need to stop basing our relationship with God on behavior. We are so behaviorally oriented. This makes sense. God gave the, old, the, the Jews and gave the Israelites his law, gave his people a law. And what did they do? They're like, oh, rules, yes. And then the Pharisees came along like, oh, we got rules. And these rules are hard to keep. So let's make even more rules. Let's make rules in addition to God's rules. And these new rules that we make will help us keep God's rules. And then we'll make everybody follow the rules. And we'll enforce the rules. And if no one obeys the rules, we'll punish them. Because rules are everything. Because God gave us a law. And the law is a bunch of rules. And the Old Testament says, follow my rules, follow my rules, follow my rules. Rules, 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 rules. Law. That's that's who we are naturally. We are not naturally people of grace. We are inclined to rules. We're so inclined to rules that we know and are obviously aware when we break rules. We're so inclined to rules that we can feel the tension in our soul when we break those rules. That's why when you're speeding down the road and you see a cop, you're like, whoops, and you slow down. They're like, rules! Oops, almost didn't obey the rules there. We're so, we are so much more legalistic than we tend to think we are. Even as Christians who really truly understand the gospel. And because we are that way, we tend to base our relationship with God that way. And what naturally happens because of our sinful nature is we start thinking about our relationship with God that is already existing because of Christ... And why does our relationship exist? Because of what Christ did for us, right? Nothing we did. Nothing we did. The relationship exists because Jesus did something we can't do. And because of that, because of our simple inclination about rules and kind of a legalistic mentality, and despite knowing that our relationship is based on nothing we did or no rule following, we didn't follow any rules to get saved, We were saved by the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit who gave us the gift of faith to proclaim, yes, I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all that is by God's grace. Why? So that no one may boast. So that you get zero credit for your salvation. And the reason you get zero credit is so that God gets all the praise and glory. Now we know that, yet... We still will feel like my relationship with God is not okay right now because of my inability to follow the rules. Because I didn't obey him. We still just are so rule-oriented. We can't get away from it. And that, because of that mentality, well, let me just say this. The reason that mentality exists is because Christ is not at the center of our affections and our attention and our desire. Rules are. Because we're thinking about the word. What does the word say? What does the word say? And we forget, we forget, we forget this, this super important reality that the word is not a book. It's a person. It's Christ. He is the word. The rules are not there so that you can accomplish the feat of obeying them. The rules are there because when you're in the rules, you're in Christ. The rules are there because when you're walking in the rules, you are walking directly behind Jesus. You're following in his footsteps. The rules don't keep you okay with God. The rules keep you close to Christ The rules aren't meant to be followed because the rule is the goal. The rules point you to Jesus. The rules get you to Jesus. I don't want to follow the rules just to say I follow the rules. I want to follow the rules because if I do that, I will be ever closer to Christ. I will know him better. I will be closer to him. I will be following him. And if things go wrong because I followed his rules and I know that I'm close to him, who's going to take the arrows when things go wrong? If my obedience to Christ puts me directly behind Christ and I get persecuted or accused or something because I'm following his rules and he's right in front of me because I'm following every single one of his footsteps according to his word and arrows come flying at me from the enemy or from the world, what does Jesus tell me? He says, the world cannot hate you, John 7, 7, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. He takes the arrows. He's persecuted. He tells us in Matthew 5, it's not you. It's not you. The prophets before you, they were persecuted too. It's me they hate. It's me they're persecuting. It's my name they despise, not yours. Follow my rules. Get behind me. Follow each step. And our motivation for the rules is Jesus, not the rules themselves. I have more to say about Jesus. (laughs) A lot more, actually. (laughs) So I'm going to stop. And I'm going to pick this up next week with the following texts. Because there's more things I want to talk about when it comes to Christ. And and I didn't even get to (laughs) the sermon title, which is, I forget what the sermon title is. In the presence of our bridegroom is is the sermon title. Um, So I haven't even talked about the marriage between Christ and his church, which is profoundly important to this verse 21, I think, and to verses 22 and 23. So next week what I'll do is I'll bring these pieces together and we'll talk about the bridegroom, that's Christ, and the bride, that's us. And why that relationship in scripture is so unbelievably important. Why that analogy is so fundamental to the church why the marriage analogy between Christ and the church is essential to our living a Christ-centered life. So come back next week because it's an awesome truth that God tells us about and I can't wait to share it with you. But I'm going to implement wisdom and we're going to pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. You are good to us. We don't deserve you. But in Christ... In Christ, you have made us new. And in Christ, you have given us a, a renewed affection for you and desire for you. And so make Jesus our motivation. Motivate us toward righteousness and toward Christ-likeness. Help us to follow your rules. Not for the sake of the rules. And not as a means to appease your anger or your wrath. But help us to follow the rules because in the rules we find our loving Savior, our adoring God, our perfect master, our shepherd, and our peace. In our rules, in your rules, we find Christ. So we want Jesus. And if that means we've got to step into your rules and obey your commands to, to, to have more of him, then so be it. Then we'll obey those rules and help us to keep in mind that those are just there to strengthen our affections for you, to grow our desire for you, to embellish our zeal for you, and satisfy our hearts in you to the exaltation of Jesus and his gospel, which brings you much glory, God. So help your people this week by the power of your Spirit to take a a fresh, renewed look at you, to sit down by themselves in prayer and in your word and to say, God, renew my perspective on you. And then work in their heart and mind. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.